Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fence Lines and Headlines here on the Western Ag Network. Thanks for joining us on Facebook or YouTube, or if you're listening to the audio on the LaneCast Ag Podcast, we appreciate you joining us here once again. We're going to continue to have conversations about some of the top headlines that we covered on the Western Ag Network that we think are important to farmers and ranchers out in the countryside. Now, these are just a few of the stories that we shared on our radio and TV programs throughout the week, but... Uh, uh, as always, we're going to be joined by the one and only Mr. Russell Nimitz. He's coming to us uh, from his studio there at home, just just like just like me. We're in our home studios. That's how we that's how we roll here at the Western Egg Network. But Russ, uh, how are things uh, at home here today? Yeah, you know, it's been a little bit of time since we've been in our home studios. It seems like we've been uh, either in our pickups or on airplanes uh, covering some of the big issues out here in the West. But every once in a while, it does feel good to get back home. And yeah, definitely fall is in the air. You know, we changed seasons uh, within the past week and uh, now we're cruising right on into the busy fall schedule for us. So uh, full speed ahead, right? Yeah, and and you know, I I always think that the the true switch for from summer to fall just needs to be Labor Day when it's the official time to go from straw hat season to felt hat season. <laughs> I I think that's really when fall should occur. To me, that's when it does. Because on air the other day, I know I mentioned fall like five days before it was technically fall, and I I got an email from a listener saying it is technically not fall yet. Well. If I'm wearing a felt, which I do wear a felt almost all year, but uh, it, it's fall season it, it, when when it's felt hat after Labor Day, according to me. But, uh, y- you know, with us not being quite on the road as much, uh, I've been uh, obviously I did not change before the, this out, uh, uh, change outfits before we recorded today's show. But I've been uh, helping my father-in-law. We've been redoing our lead up to our loading shoot there when semis roll in to load calves or cows and um, I literally was looking at my hands right now. I did wash up before I came to record, but I didn't know if I was, I didn't know if I was turning into a Simpsons character or what, but then I realized, oh, I was wearing brand new gloves, uh, today. Oh. So if, if I look a little jaundice on my hands today, you know, I've been working a little bit, got, had to cover up my, 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 uh, not my calluses, but, uh, all these blisters I'm getting on my hands from running the spud bar. Cause you know, yeah, well, you got to do a little ranch out. work so I can wear my cowboy hat. Yeah. I will vouch, you know, when you were talking to me, uh, yesterday and a little bit today, you said you were, uh, out in the field actually working, uh, without a broadcast microphone or a, a TV camera, you were building fence. So I will yeah. vouch for your hardworking efforts outside of the broadcast studio this week. Hopefully the hopefully the panels don't fall down. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, quickly, you were talking about the change in seasons. You know, I mean, that's always a big a big topic, especially for meteorologists out there. You know, you have the whatever the technical term is. You know, that is on the calendar. But then it's you know when the moon is where it's at and all this other stuff. But I'm kind of like with you when when the calendar says September, it's it's fall and. You know, you yourself could do a whole fence lines and headline segment on just cowboy hat etiquette and when you're supposed to wear felts and when you're not and when straw hats are allowable and when they're not and hats indoors, when you can do it, when not. And 
you know, you know, speaking of cowboy hat etiquette, I, and I can't even think of which group, but down in Texas, somebody just shared a picture. They were speaking down at one of the, must've been one of the, the farm bureau or cattlemen's uh, meetings down there. And there was an image in it. They had a cowboy hat table. Um, and, and the question was, do your state meetings have cowboy hat tables where you literally park your hat outside the meeting room and go in and, uh, because heck, most of the time you can't even find a good place to put your hat. And I'm like, you know, that, that is interesting. You know, I, I, I don't yeah. know if any other States outside of Texas do that. Cause there's always that debate, Russ, do you take your hat off in a bar when you're eating or and my, my, mine is if there's a hat rack, most of the time I will put my hat there. But I, if you're, you're somewhere that there's no respect for a cowboy hat, you're scared to put anywhere. I don't want to get stole <laughs> neither. I'm opening a can of worms that I'm not ready to defend myself uh, <laughs> from the online haters. So I let's jump into our fence lines. And yeah, we should. Um, we should. Um, here today. But uh, Russ, uh, you and I, uh, as we've traveled the nation, um, we have a lot of conversations with farmers and ranchers and consumers alike. But it, it does seem that more Americans are becoming uh, more concerned with agricultural land or agricultural technology uh, being sold to foreign investors. Uh, and last week, the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services advanced a bill supported by agriculture groups uh, like the National Cattlemen's Beef Association among others, that strengthens oversight of foreign agricultural purchases here in the United States. Now, this the, the meat of this legislation would add the Secretary of Agriculture as a member of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS. It's an interagency committee that views the national security impact of foreign investments in the United States. Now, earlier this week, during a White House press briefing, uh, Secretary uh, of Agriculture Tom Vilsack was talking with reporters there at the White House about uh, the government shutdown. But he was asked about uh, the threat to national and food security when foreign entities from countries like China, for example, buy U.S. farm ground. Here was his answer. Well, I think there's concern, uh, as there was in the North Dakota circumstance, where uh, the Chinese uh, interest was purchasing a land near a, a military installation. Uh, I think there's legitimate concerns uh, in, in that space, and I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, we've uh, articulated the need uh, as a department to be more engaged in the CFIUS process. Uh, I would also say that I think there's work to be done uh, to give us the tools to be able to do uh, an even better job of ensuring that we know when these transactions take place. It's complicated, uh, but every county has their county recorder. Uh, and on any given day, somebody may walk into that recorder's office and file a deed, and there's no way of knowing precisely whether or not that is a Chinese purchaser. So we would, you know, we need to work on how we might be able to collect the information and be able to analyze that information in a timely way so that we would determine whether or not a threat exists or not. Reporters then asked the secretary if he was not confident in the current system. Not that I'm not confident. It's that I think I think we could be, uh, we could do, I think we're confident in the job we're doing today because we are be able to identify circumstances as was the case in North Dakota. I think uh, that if, any, if, if folks are looking for a, a foolproof system so that nothing gets through the cracks, then I think there are ways in which we can be helpful uh, and, and we can improve that process. Being part of CFIUS, I think, is part of it. Being, uh, being able to collect information uh, in, in a way that allows us to go a little bit deeper and, and a little quicker uh, would be helpful as well. 
So uh, according to USDA, uh, Rouse, you and I both shared these stats this week on our radio reports. I heard yours on Thursday morning as well. But uh, as of uh, 2021, uh, foreign entities own just 3% or 40 million acres of privately held ag land. And Canadian investors are actually the largest uh, owner of U.S. ag land in the nation at just uh, over 12,800,000 acres. And as of that 2021 report, Chinese investors only owned about 380,000 acres. So obviously, uh, that's a couple of years old. And uh, and that might not be the full number of those uh, reported. And again, we're not trying to fear monger. We're trying to share the facts there, too, because actually, I believe the secretary has changed his tune a little bit because uh, earlier in the spring, I know we sat down with him and we pointed out he was wearing his same tie as when you sat yeah. down with him at Commodity Classic. But he, I think his tune has kind of changed a little bit because he really talked about how, you know, it was only three percent of uh, land. Well, then we had that balloon pop over Montana. Uh, the spy balloon and, and it kind of seems i think he's changed his tune just a little bit on that i was going to bring up that uh chinese spy slash weather balloon or whatever they're uh identifying at a chinese <laughs> ufo let's put it like that but uh yeah i think he did change his tune as well of course we're getting a little bit closer to the 2024 uh election year too and uh, we all know how politicians can uh, change their tune for a lot of things when uh, their their seat or their party's uh, control is uh, up for grabs, uh, whether on the state level or on the national level. But um, something to pay attention to. I mean, gosh, anything goes in today's society. And, you know, farmers and ranchers have every right to be a little bit nervous when foreign investors are coming in and buying up more and more farm and ranch land. But it's just, I and again, I, I don't know the number, but just the tens of thousands of clerk and recorders that are out there that would be receiving this information and having to file. I, I do understand how that is such a difficult task and trying to go through with that. But I, I do think, as we mentioned at the beginning, adding someone like the Secretary of Agriculture, whoever it may be uh, down the road, uh, to be on that Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., you know, that's just, that's not just farmland, but that's agricultural technology and anything to do with agriculture, I, I think that's a no-brainer because food security is a part of national security and having the the top, uh, the the chief of the USDA on that, I, I think that would be important. Yeah, I do too. I mean, and and, and Vilsack, he's, you know, I'll give him credit. I mean, he's he's been a politician for a long, long time, you know, and he started as as a mayor there in, in Iowa, and then he went to be on to become governor. And then of course, you know, the, his first term as secretary of ag under Obama and, and now his second appearance back at the USDA under, under Biden. I mean, the guy does know farm and ranch country. You have to give him that even, even having him bring up the fact that each County has a clerk and recorder, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but there's a lot of politicians out there that probably don't even know that. Yeah. Well, again, uh, it'll be interesting to watch that progression of that bill. It uh, did move out of committee and will uh, continue its uh, course. Uh, obviously, all the other mainstream media continues to cover the uh, issues with uh, um with the government and funding. We're, we're going to stay out of that one today. I, I thought that yeah. was an interesting story, but uh, yeah. So foreign owned entities that uh, that's a great way to kick things off here today. <laughs> well, it is. And you know, for agriculture, it seems like there's, 
you know, the other big uh, topic that we talk a lot about, regardless of what segment or even what industry of U.S. business or the economy we're talking about, are imports. And um, the impact that imports can have on any particular industry, if we start getting more imports than our good, that our domestic industry can can withstand. And um, certainly this has been a topic that's been kicked around within the U.S. sheep industry, too. And Russell Nimitz was able to catch up with Brad Boner, who's president of the American Sheep Industry Association. And ASI has been working to see the impact that these foreign lamb imports have had on U.S. lamb producers. And Brad shares more on those efforts. Well, over the years, history has certainly shown that imports can absolutely kill a domestic market regardless of the industry. And for this reason alone, the American Sheep Industry Association now has been considering a possible trade case against lamb importing countries. Joining us now is ASI President Brad Boner out of Wyoming. And Brad, thank you for being with us. And I guess first thing out of the shoot, why don't you give us the latest on this possible trade case? Yeah, so um, since uh, the early part of May, uh, in early part of May, at the request of some of our membership, ASI retained a, a trade law firm that uh, resides in Washington D.C. and uh, began a preliminary investigation into into the uh, ability, our ability to to bring a trade case against Australia and New Zealand, uh, in, in particular in in 2022, 2021, and 2022 imports were were uh, grew by leaps and bounds. And so uh, we thought it was time to look at this and, and our members thought it was time to look at it. So we began that process in May. Uh, we just got their memo uh, late last week. Uh, our executive board met yesterday and reviewed uh, the findings of the preliminary investigation and uh, and uh, interviewed the law firm as well. And uh, it was agreed to by the executive board that we would not go forward at this time with a trade case against Australia and New Zealand. Um, in the, in the memo uh, or, and in the interview with our law firm, they felt confident that we could prove that we were injured, especially at the uh, initial level uh, would be slightly tougher at the, at the second level, but they were confident, uh, relatively confident we could do that. But, Unfortunately, there are two things that have to happen in a trade case. Not only do you have to prove injury, but in a case of anti-dumping or countervailing, you have to prove that they're selling their product for cheaper here than they're selling it for in the home country or that they are subsidizing their producers. Uh, there was no evidence found of subsidies in Australia or New Zealand to their producers. And the, uh, the uh, uh, dumping margins that they found after uh, uh, investigating prices uh, that they're selling the product here versus prices that they're getting for their product in Australia were negative to a maximum of one to 2%. So going forward, what we would have done if we would have gone forward, we went to ITC, uh, International Trade Commission, and and uh, done the injury case. Uh, potentially, uh, they would have agreed that we were injured. We would have then had to go to the Par Department of Commerce and they would have done their own investigation we would have had to do uh, uh, more in detailed uh, surveys to the producer membership and, and received a good response. And then um, they would have determined what 
if any dumping happened at all, uh, what the margins were. And, and our investigation showed that we were not, it was unlikely that we were going to find any dumping margin at all. Most of them were negative. Uh, best case scenario, but it would have been one to 2%. So what that means is we would have had a one to 2% tariff uh, at best case scenario. And, and uh, in a, in a industry that currently the domestic product is 30% above, uh, you know, the Australian New Zealand product that probably would have had little impact on, on how much uh, lamb they brought into this country. Well, absolutely, Brad. And it sounds like uh, ASI has certainly done its due diligence, which I'm sure the entire industry and your membership fully appreciates. And even though the decision has been made not to pursue a trade case, we still need to visit about the seriousness of these imports to domestic sheep producers like yourself, because they are hurting our domestic market. Yeah, there, there's no doubt that that's, that's happening. I guess the, the, the frustrating part and, and um, the world we live in, we got to live by the trade laws and, and either that or go to Congress and ask uh, Congress to do something. And, and, you know, I, how that would probably pay out, play out is uh, congressional action would, even if they wanted to, Australia and New Zealand would, would uh, threaten to retaliate. Um, Australia in particular is, uh, we are net uh, positive with them on trade balance. So so we export more goods to them than they do. So, I mean, it's just a huge uphill battle. And uh, at the moment, um, you know, very limited opportunities to, uh, to fix it. Going forward, uh, we will continue to look at this and watch it. There are opportunities going forward. Uh, the COVID uh, piece of this, which I can explain a little bit later, played into it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think uh, we'll, we'll continue to keep our eye on the on this rabbit and uh, and see where it goes. Yeah, for sure. You know, we should also talk about the fact that the domestic sheep industry lost a lot of its packing capacity during that COVID pandemic, you know, followed by multiple years of severe drought, especially out here in the West, which a lot of domestic sheep are raised on, which truly only amplified the seriousness of these imports on our domestic land prices. Am I correct? Yeah. And, you know, what we've seen in 2023 so far is a, is a 16% reduction in the, uh, in the pounds of imports that have come in uh, year over year from the first half of 2022 to the first half of, of 2023. And so, uh, you know, they are reducing now. They do follow the market as our, as our cutout went down and their margins got lower, they imported less lamb here. Um, and, and so, you know, they, they're an animal of the, a creature of the market as well, just like we are. And as market conditions change, there's a lag there, but they respond to the market as well, just like everybody else does. Now, Brad, even though the American Sheep Industry Association's uh, executive board and board of directors has decided not to pursue a trade case for the obvious reasons we've been talking about today uh, on those lamb importing countries, we can't forget to mention that the industry is getting some legislative help from Western members of Congress, like Wyoming Senator John Barrasso, Wyoming Senator Cynthia Lummis, North Dakota Senators Kevin Kramer and John Hoven, 
as well as South Dakota Senator Mike Rounds. How important is it to have this type of support from uh, these Western members of Congress, which I would have to think that more, more members from Western Egg Network country are going to sign on to this important issue? Yeah, we would hope so. And, and it, the importance is, is, is can't be uh, overstated. It's huge. Uh, and, and we're lucky in Wyoming with our congressional delegation to have tremendous support for our industry. And, 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 and uh, many of the, of the Western states are in a similar position, but, but this, uh, this, you know, uh, in 2022, the Biden administration published a final rule that would allow uh, uh, imports from from the UK, uh, Canada, and Mexico. And, and all we're asking them to do is do a stop and study. It's been 20 years uh, since since uh, they've looked at the consequences uh, or and possible disease outbreaks that could come from, from these importations. And we're just asking USDA to do a one-year stop and study and to look at all these things. And, and uh, let's get some real-time information here so we can make sure we're making a, a good decision. Well, I think it's the least that uh, the administration, whether it's this one or whatever happens next year during the election can do. I mean, this country, I mean, you know it as well as anybody else. And I've been to a lot of ASI conventions and in my nearly 30 years of being in farm broadcasting to know scrapey eradication has been one of ASI's top priorities for as long as I can remember. And rightfully so, not just to keep our domestic sheep flock uh, healthy, but also to keep our consumers safe. And so it's the least this administration can do and future administrations to do and to ask of other importing countries, right? Yeah, I think that's the, 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 the big ask here is that we've asked multiple administrations to do actually uh, going backwards is that that you know, if they're going to uh, bring in new imports, we want access to those markets as well. We don't have access to Australia and New Zealand's market. They aren't going to give us access. Uh, you know, uh, we, it, these other countries, we want access to those markets and, and fair trade um, with those people and, and with no barriers. And, uh, and that's the least they can do, in my opinion. Well, and just to kind of wrap things up, Brad, uh, I mean, these imports, along with a lot of other important industry issues, will certainly be discussed at the upcoming ASI annual convention in January, which is headed for Denver. Why don't you talk a little bit about that and uh, set the tone for the 2024 ASI convention? Yeah, I just real quick like to invite everybody to come to Denver uh, the January 10th through the 13th. We're kind of right in the middle of stock show there, so you can kill a lot of birds with one stone there and and uh, we would we'll be talking about a lot of these issues that 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 uh, are impactful to the United American lamb industry, American sheep industry, and uh, and we'd just like everybody to come and and we'd love to see you in Denver. Absolutely. Well, again, our thanks to ASI President Brad Boner out of Wyoming for joining us. And for more information about the uh, trade case imports the upcoming convention, and anything more that's related to our U.S. sheep industry, you can visit the American Sheep Industry Association's website at sheepusa.org. Ready for a real PRF partner? He was willing to track us for a year and provide that data back to us for a year. That's a guy making a pretty big investment. At Ag Risk Advisors, this isn't our first rodeo. 
We are one of the most experienced in pasture rangeland forage. Honesty, commitment, trust. Many companies use these words. At AgRisk Advisors, we earn them. As we come back to our fence lines and headlines conversation uh, here today, uh, there's been a lot of talk, of course, around lab growing protein. And it seems that in the West here, we focus on the protein sector, that being meat. We've discussed uh, lab growing beef and lab growing chicken for quite some time, but uh, the conversation also is other protein sectors of agriculture, including the dairy industry as well. And just uh, recently, a group of United States senators, Russell, uh, sent a letter to the Food and Drug Administration, and they were calling for on the enforcement of dairy label regulations. And specifically, that letter asked FDA to crack down on non-dairy lab-growing products that they say are illegally labeled with dairy terms. Uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin, a Wisconsin Democrat, says that uh, this effort seeks to get FDA to just do its job. To the sort of newer entry into this uh, challenge, these lab-based, quote-unquote, dairy products, it, it doesn't make any sense. These are modified microbes that they mix in a lab and put in all sorts of additives to claim at the end that they've created a product that's identical to that found in cow's milk. I don't buy it, and I don't think that consumers should be misled. Current FDA regulations define dairy products as being from dairy animals. However, the FDA has failed to enforce these regulations, allowing non-dairy products to use dairy names. On a similar front, in July, members of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association passed a directive at their summer business meeting to continue the association's advocacy efforts on transparent labeling and inspection of cell-cultured protein products. And if you get a mislabel like that, uh, that consumer going to that meat counter is going to see a package of ground beef. Well, suddenly that ground beef product is not going to be differentiated from that other goop that they're trying to pass off that they grow in a big vat. So we're dealing with this legislatively and we're also dealing with this on a regulatory basis. So we're dealing with FDA and FSIS to make sure that the labeling gets uh, correct but we're having to force the regulatory issue through legislative. And Russell, earlier this year, we reported that USDA issued two grants of inspection to companies producing cell-cultured chicken imitation products. Uh, these grants of inspection permit companies producing these cell-cultured lab-growing products to sell their products in interstate commerce. And at this time, there still is not cell-cultured fake beef that's lab growing. Uh, they have not yet received a grant of inspection, but there are definitely several companies attempting to create these products and get them approved. And again, I obviously I can be a little biased when we're talking about the beef side of things, because obviously our families raise beef, but I think it would be so misleading to have these products right next to each other. But the same can already be said, calling almond milk, almond milk. That's what I was going to say is like there's the blurring of the lines is getting 
more and more, it seems, with every day. And when when even I see this story that you covered on, you know, lab-grown milk, it's it's like, where, where are we going to go from that? And that's why agricultural groups are just so adamant about making sure the right agencies are overseeing uh, these different, quote, food products, you know, whether it should be the U.S. Department of Agriculture, whether it should be the Food and Drug Administration, <laughs> or, you know, who knows? I mean, what agency? But but most of the mainstream agricultural organizations are thinking USDA should be the one taking the lead on a lot of this stuff. Very, very true. But, uh, you know, one thing about good beef is uh, all the work that goes into having a good cow herd, great bulls and, and having re really good genetic selection. And, and uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to go on the Montana Angus tour this year. But Russell, you and our network's uh, Paul Humphrey were able to, to go out there for the Midland Empire Angus tour and uh, uh, before we get to our our, our, our our segment about that here today, what what was that just being out and, and seeing all the good Angus genetics that uh, really uh, Montana does play uh, on the world level in, in the Angus industry, but just what was that like seeing the Angus cattle, but also just all the people? It was incredible. You know, it's it been a few years since I've been on a Montana Angus tour. There was a time when I didn't miss one, but, um, you know, things happen and, and whatnot, but it was it was perfect weather for 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 this year's Montana Angus tour and you know they had six buses of people and I don't know how many cars and pickups and whatnot traveled you know behind the buses to each of the tour stops this year. I guess when it was all said and done, you know they had nearly 500 people registered for it. 27 states lane were represented this year, and uh, three countries were also in attendance or represented, I guess is a better way to put it, Australia, the United Kingdom, and South Africa. And it just kind of goes to show, you know, why Montana and really this part of Western Ag Network country is still known as the seed stock capital of the world. I mean, folks from across America and around the world truly do seek out these purebred breeders, you know, we're going to talk about the Angus on this one, but same could be said for the Hereford breeders in our region, you know, the Charlet breeders and the Simital breeders, we go on and on. I mean, we've been raising these high quality genetics in this part of the world for so long that this is just where everybody comes to get them. Or the red Angus breeders too. Got to gotta throw that that's one right. in there too. I, since. That's right. <laughs> I knew I was opening up a can of worms when I started listing off breeds, you know, but but it's true. I mean, our cattle producers, our seed stock producers, they're some of the best in the business right here in our, our coverage area. And, you know, their cattle speak for themselves. Well, and uh, talking about someone that has had a big impact on Montana's uh, Angus industry, that, that that's going to be our lead into our next story. Uh, Russell Nimitz uh, caught up with the one and only Bob Cook, who was given one of the uh, great honors that the Montana Angus Associations bestows upon individuals who make a big difference in the breed, especially in Montana. Uh, we are going to take you to that uh, conversation with Russell and Bob Cook right now. Well, one of the many highlights, Lane, from this year's Montana Angus Tour, which, by the way, this year was hosted by the Midland Empire Angus Association here in South Central Montana, was finding out who the recipient of this year's 
Montana Angus Association's Wayne Stevenson Award was. And without further ado, let's go ahead and introduce folks to this year's recipient, our dear friend and the industry's friend, Bob Cook. And Bob, I have to be 100% honest, I was watching Kurt Kangas's Facebook video about from the banquet the other night here here in Billings, and it looked to me like you were completely caught off guard, and this was a, a big surprise to you. Oh, it was absolutely, absolutely. I, matter of fact, as I was telling you a minute ago, I was sitting next to Joe Goggins, and I looked over at him, and Roger Jacobs was walking up with a plaque, and I looked at Joe, I said, I wonder who's going to get that this year. So, yeah, it was a surprise. You know, you're one of the, the humblest men that I've ever met in the industry, and, and it, this award truly couldn't go to a more deserving individual. Let's, for those that may or may not know, let's talk about your history and how you ended up out here in Montana and how you got involved with the Angus breed because your family originally kind of got started in eastern North Dakota, is that right? Oh, that's right, but my dad started the registered Angus business in the 1940s. I mean, I've been an Angus enthusiast all my life and uh, it's just gone from there. We raised Angus cattle. We started out in eastern North Dakota then bought a ranch in western North Dakota and raised Angus cattle there and I was educated uh, in Fargo as high school but I went to North Dakota State University and and after that uh, ended up in Bismarck with the North Dakota Stockman's Association for about five years and then there was an opening for the regional manager of the American Angus Association in Montana and Wyoming and I didn't know a lot of people out here, but I was encouraged to uh, apply. I did, and I got the job, and uh, that's how I got to Montana. Yeah, and then you fell in love with Kareen Goggins, <laughs> and then that opened up a whole new chapter in the Angus world, right? Well, I, you know, my job with the Angus Association <laughs> was traveling to a lot of sales and, and participating, and uh, her father, uh, Pat, was one of the great auctioneers of all yeah. times, and I traveled with him. and. And uh, it, yeah, it kind of went from there. Uh, I got invited to a few Sunday dinners and, and one thing led to another. <laughs> well, it's been a fantastic career and you guys have built a wonderful family out here in, in Montana. And, and of course you have kept your roots very much uh, planted in the Angus breed. You know, just talk about the Angus breed and the industry, kind of, you know, where it was when you, you know, when you were a kid to where, where it is now, I mean, I bet you just sometimes just sit back and just go, wow. Yeah, I mean, the Angus breed is, is a powerful breed uh, worldwide and in the United States. And we're so fortunate here in Montana because we're number one in registrations. We're number uh, one in performance. Uh, uh, people seek out uh, Montana bred cattle. And when I came back and started with the Angus Association in 72, uh, this was just the beginning. I mean, people were starting to discover Montana and uh, the uh, the Angus breeders out here, the performance breeders that yeah. were then, and and they they did a great job, and it's just uh, it's just gone on and on, and, and we 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 we're in a great position. Well, and you know, genetics are are what the breed is really known about, and I I can't help but think folks watching this see the the VR logo in the background, and underneath that that big certified Angus beef, and those folks that know that CAB brand that are consumers may maybe not directly involved in production agriculture, but that delicious and high quality beef eating experience truly starts with with high quality genetics with the cattle themselves. Yep, and and I was. Uh just uh, 
finishing up my time with the Ang Association when CAB came along. And I, I understand the struggles CAB had the first number of years between uh, federal regulations and people accepting it. So it's, it's quite rewarding all these years later to see that it's, uh, it's the number one branded beef in the world. And uh, it's great. You know, as I mentioned at the top of the program, the Midland Empire Angus Association is hosting this year's Montana Angus Tour. Of course, this uh, local association is, is very near and dear to you and your family's uh, uh, heart. Uh, just talk about the importance still of, of being able to have this Montana Angus Tour, which, which, you know, on the calendar truly is celebrating its 50th year minus that COVID year we didn't have a tour. Yep. And I was there when we started and, and uh, helped with the first one. And uh, I, I, you know, I was with the ones that were here at the Midland Empire up until this year, I, I kind of was in charge, I guess. And uh, uh, they just get stronger. I mean, people love to come to these tours. We, last, the other night at the banquet, there was 350 people there. And we asked the people from out of state and out of country to stand up and nearly half the crowd stood up. I mean. People look forward to this tour. I mean, uh, an adjoining state uh, that had a tour last week uh, had two buses to start with and ended up with one. Yeah. We got six to start with, and we're going to end up with five or six. And uh, a big crowd, and, and uh, it's been a tour that is not hard to gather people. No. Now, technically, a lot of folks know or may not know, you're supposed to be retired. But I don't think you're 100% retired because you still go into Billings and have an office at the public auction yards. You're still actively involved out here at the Vermilion Ranch. I mean, when you're not working cattle or doing anything all things cattle, what are you, what are you keeping busy with? Well, I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I have backed away from the yards. I mean, they've got a good people running the yards and I'm there, but I spend probably most of my time on the Vermilion Ranch. We, you know, we calve 1,250 spring cabin registered cows and 400 registered fall cows. We have a couple production sales a year. Uh, so I can stay busy um, uh, just doing that, and I enjoy that. I I don't know what I'd do if, if I wasn't doing something. I guess I never, I, I uh, tried golf once, didn't, didn't necessarily <laughs> fall in love with it. I did end up living on a golf course, but I don't golf. Uh, I fished when I was a kid, but yeah. I quit that a long time ago. and. I, I enjoy life. I, I enjoy what I'm doing, and I've got grandkids that are in yeah. sports now and, and lots of things, so I keep busy. Yeah. Hey, last question, then I'll let you off the hook. I mean, do you feel pretty good about where the uh, Angus breed and the industry is at and, and, and where it's all set up for the next generation and those young people coming behind you and I and, and those to follow? I do. I think the Angus breed's been great, but the challenges are out there. I mean... There, there are things going on now that are being introduced that w weren't even on the radar 10, 15 years ago. And uh, that younger generation, when they come along, they're, they're gonna have to absorb all of this new technology and, and uh, it's ever changing. And it's, it, it's, it's not bad to have it change. No, it isn't. Well. Thanks for your words of wisdom and your little bit of time that you've given us this afternoon. Bob, oh, thank by you. the way, congratulations thank again, you. folks. This year's Wayne Stevenson Award recipient, the Montana Angus Association's Wayne Stevenson Award recipient, and our dear friend, Bob Cook. Again, for more information, 
about the Montana Angus Association itself, you can always jump online and visit them at mtangus.org. And we should also mention that the 2024 Montana Angus Tour is going to be held in central Montana. So be sure to get on the uh, Montana Angus Association's website and uh, get the 2024 Montana Angus Tour dates on your calendar and make plans to join us uh, in central Montana or the Judith Basin country. Charlie Russell country, Lane. It is Charlie Russell country. So Absolutely. many of those paintings have... Uh the real square butte you know they got that one butte that's west yeah. of great falls they call that square butte as well but now nah, and technically square butte you know east of great falls that's there in, in the Judith basin that's more of a mesa if we're going to be you know <laughs> using <laughs> geological terms but uh i'll yeah. go with the historic uh, square butte name that uh, i mean truly is it, it's awe-inspiring when you drive around central montana there uh, but uh, no i'm glad you got to go on that angus tour look forward to hopefully jumping on those buses and seeing folks next year and uh, there at the beginning of november also the American, the American Ang Association, they'll be holding their annual convention down in Orlando, Florida. So be, uh, we'll, we'll have some reports and updates from that event for everybody as well. Uh, yeah, we'll call down there and talk with everybody in Orlando here in a few weeks. Yeah, and folks can jump on their website and and get registered. Uh, I know, you know, that convention in itself, wherever it's at, last year was in Salt Lake City, uh, or this year it was. Um, no, last year. Last year, I'm getting I'm getting my, all my years mixed up. But anyway, it doesn't matter where it's at. There is just so many Angus enthusiasts out there that, I mean, uh, the sooner you can get registered, the better. And you can just visit Angus.org and do exactly that. Yep. Well, Russ, I, I think we had some interesting stories. And yeah, I, I, I don't think I look too yellow. No, Jonathan is, uh, is wearing off. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, but, but, but you can, you, you know, you can always get more sun. Well, these artificial lights for the TV set, they uh, they help with that vitamin D deficiency. Is, it, is that the one I need? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I know, right? I know. But uh, yeah, we, we covered some interesting stories, a lot of important stories. And as you talked about at the top of the program, I mean, that's just a fraction of what we've truly covered. Not just you and I, but our entire team, you know, uh, Paul Humphrey, Haley Ship, Rachel Gable, uh, you know. We can't get everything on in one of these segments, but we we sure try to get, you know, as many of these stories on radio and TV throughout the week and also on our social media channels, westernagnetwork.com, Facebook, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. That's right. If you haven't done so, make sure and subscribe while you're visiting the YouTube channel or all of our social media channels while you're at it. Russ, I'll let you get back to your day. And thank you to all of our friends for joining us here on our Fence Lines and Headlines conversation. On behalf of the entire Western Ag Network crew, I'm Lane Northland. We'll catch you next time.